Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Karen McPhee. Welcome, Karen. Nice to be here, Rick. We'll introduce Karen in more detail in a minute. I just want to say in general that this is a show uh, on which people who have had or are in the process of having a spiritual awakening are interviewed. There have been over 300 of them now. And if you're new to this, go to batgap.com and you'll see them all archived in various ways under the past interviews menu. These shows, uh, if done on Skype, are also live streams that people can watch and send in questions that they would like me to ask. On the upcoming interviews page, there's a form at the bottom that you can fill out to submit a question. And the whole thing is supported by appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you feel like helping to support it, there's a donate button there. I enjoyed preparing for Karen's interview. She has had quite a life and is still having one <laughs> and has been through an awful lot. So I think this interview will turn out to be somewhat biographical and, and also just a lot of interesting knowledge that'll come out, which Karen has amassed as she's gone through life. With Karen, we can start pretty young. She said that from a very young age, she could sense and see the invisible energetic dimension from a, uh, and had the awareness of presence in early childhood. Maybe you'd like to elaborate on that before I go on to the next one. Well, uh, there's one scene that comes to mind where, you know, it was really vivid and I was very young, maybe three or four, and someone came up behind me and I couldn't hear them or see them, but I felt their presence and I knew what they're feeling, what they were thinking, and at the same time, just aware of this huge space of stillness in which it was all happening. Mm. So it was it was very vivid. Must have been for you to for you to have remembered it. It's still here now. You know, don't you find that those moments of timelessness? I mean, they're timeless, so it's always available. But yeah, I had one when I was a really little kid. I must have been under three, where I was so convinced that I was actually able to fly around the house, up and down the stairs and all that. I, I remember having an argument with my mother about it. Yeah, I, I fly, you know? And she said, no, dear, you don't fly. I can still remember the experience <laughs> of actually zooming up the stairs and, and so on. So I must have been some kind of out-of-body thing. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. <laughs> it's true. I mean, when we're in our energy body or whatever you want to call it, we are flying, right? Yeah, and you literally can, I believe. You can even do it in your physical one if you're evolved enough. Then, skipping quite a few years here, uh, at the age of 16, you had a cancer diagnosis, and that, you, you count that as a significant milestone. It really was. Yeah, almost everything between the first experience we talked about and that is kind of a, a blur, really, but mm -hmm. that, it stands out again because I think I might have shared that with you. There was a moment, and I don't remember where it was in the process, I don't know if it was before or after the surgery. I can't remember. Anyway, bottom line. You had once, surgery for the cancer? Yeah. You do you mind my asking what kind of cancer it was? Thyroid? thyroid. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. I don't even see the scar there. So I remember when I got the call, the doctor said on the phone, hey, you've got cancer. And it was like, Egh. you know, the humanness was pretty shocked. Um, I remember just passing the phone to my dad and like, <laughs> but uh, partway through, there was this moment when I was standing outside in our driveway, actually, and everything just got perfectly still mm. and this knowing arose that this life was not going to be what I thought it was. It's kind of unusual for a young girl to get thyroid cancer, isn't it? Probably not where we lived. We didn't live there long, but it was a fairly, um, I don't say common, but not as uncommon. Environmental occurrence. toxins? 
Yeah, probably, probably. Although uh, there, there's some propensity. I think my great grandmother might have had something there, mm. and so genetic as well. Mm. But it was really interesting because you know you can always tell in hindsight that moment was the moment when awareness woke up and to some degree and realized, okay white picket fence, kids, whatever, that's not what this is about. And somehow I felt like I had been removed from normal life. And I didn't know what it meant at the time, but it was, it was just a vivid and clear space of awareness and knowing. And that impression stayed with you as the, as the four-year-old impression also stayed, right? Yeah, this one though, I would say it was probably pretty covered over for a long time. I mean, it was there, but things became pretty turbulent for a while. And right. there was about a 10-year period after that of dealing with stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But, yeah. I think I also heard you say you were raped at the age of 13 or something, right? Yeah, I didn't put that in the bio I sent you. I purposely left a few things out oh. that I didn't necessarily want to talk about here. But, hey, oh. that's okay. I just trust whatever happens yeah. is fine. Don't worry, Rick. There is a little bit of consciousness of sometimes when we talk about things that can trigger trauma but you know what whatever happens here is perfect yes so that happened before actually the cancer three, about three years before there's a number of people whom i've interviewed who've gone through that when i interviewed joan harrigan on kundalini vidya one of the things she says can somehow catalyze or trigger a kundalini awakening is some kind of severe trauma not that we would wish that upon anyone but it, it can be the cause of jolting the, the kundalini out of dormancy or something. Have you heard that? I sure have. And uh, I love that interview, by the way. It was yeah. great. If you look at it sort of from the energetic, the chakras, all the whole, which, you know, I don't claim to be an expert at. And, you know, we could say, was it really a coincidence that then the cancer happened here? Because as part of that violation, I was choked. Mm. And of course, then there's a the thing about expression and whatever. So, yeah. Then in your early 20s, you tried psychotherapy, which started to create greater self-awareness. And then later in your 20s, someone gave you a book on meditation. Perhaps I should have paused after the first bit, psychotherapy, in case there's anything you wanted to say about that. Well, actually, you know, it's just really useful. If you have a conscious practitioner, mm -hmm. which I did, they can really help a couple of ways. One is to, to help see through more of that fictional sense of self and encourage self-awareness. So yeah, actually it was very helpful. You start to notice what was previously unconscious. And in general, it sounds like you were, I don't know if you would have called yourself a seeker, but you were. The white picket fence wasn't enough, as you said, and, and you were kind of like looking for deeper meaning and resolution of stuff. Oh. Absolutely. That is common the whole way through. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that um, there was also a sort of a darkness that had come on me when I was younger. I'd, again, I didn't write about this, but you could call it a depression or something, but there was like a darkness. On one hand, it, you know, you could say it was harmful or helped suppress the expression of self. But on the other hand, it was another thing that was bringing me into this other awareness of, whoa, you know, just doing the things normal people do, that's not fulfilling. And there was something, again, I just felt separated from all of that. And that theme kept coming up over and over as well. As if you were kind of shrouded. Yeah. 
until around the time we're talking, without except you know there were those moments of clarity, mm-hmm. but yes, there was there was something that was pushing. Looking back on it now, it, it was like a sort of protracted dark night of the soul. Something was trying to come through the dark to the light, and so the dark actually had a purpose in that sense. I think everything has a purpose. No argument here. Yeah, I mean, there's no coincidence and no accident. So then somebody gave you a book on meditation. You remember what that book was? I don't remember what it was called, but mm-hmm. it was someone who was related to Edgar Casey. Okay. His partner. But no, I'm sorry, I don't remember what it was called. That's okay. But somehow or other, the book was adequate. I know when I first started getting into meditation, I was reading books and trying this and that, and I just couldn't get into it. But it sounds like you actually were able to just naturally get into a state of meditation. Pretty much right away, yeah. I, and I, it's not like I became really devoted to the practice or anything, but I just knew this was important. Now, something else that happened right at the same time, I was in a situation that was rather challenging. To get a little spookier, mm. the other thing that happened was I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would feel, let's say, someone mm. touching my arm. And then I'd come fully awake and I'd still be feeling it and there'd be no person standing there. Later, I realized it was angels and they started to communicate with me and give me some life guidance so that kind of all happened around the same time nice i think i recall you saying that either now or at times in your life you have rather routinely perceived angels or other subtle beings is that correct yes Hmm. yeah and the work that i do now it's very much part of it I just sort of lumped that all into, I call it the other dimension, just because it's, you know, it's obviously more than one dimension, but just to sort of differentiate it from our our normal consciousness, but yes. I think it's important though, without getting all hung up on it and obsessed with it, because it's like an analogy I thought of is if if we wanted to sort of understand how big the Pacific Ocean is, for instance, we could like imagine how far it is to Japan and how far it is up to Alaska and way way down to Antarctica and all, and we kind of get a sense of the, the surface area of the Pacific Ocean. But if we do that without considering how deep it is, it's mm-hmm. like we've just covered the, the most superficial aspect of it in a way, how deep it is and what it contains. And it's sort of like that with talking about life. There's this vertical dimension or this subtle dimension which is just teeming with life and intelligence and, and most people are completely unaware of it. I love that metaphor of the ocean because it's infinitely deep and I love that, it's beautiful. and. Ultimately, it's all one, but the one is expressing, you know, as you often say, as, as all of this, whether we can see it or not. So, yeah. besides, I have no control over it. It's always <laughs> sort of been here, right, through yeah. most of the time. So, yeah. We'll move on from this, but another analogy I think of is, you know, imagine if aliens landed on the White House lawn, what a big deal that would be, or <laughs> Prime Minister's lawn or whatever you have in Canada. It's like the, this huge news story because, wow, other beings exist besides the human. But yet, here we are completely surrounded by vast teeming horde of subtle beings whom the vast majority of people don't see and don't even know exist and they're all around us. That should be a big news story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well actually wasn't that on the cover of Life or Times or something? Oh, do angels exist? Yeah, and something, you know, 80% of the people believe in them or whatever. So maybe it's more than we think. Yeah, that's a bit of a sidelight, but it's interesting to me. So then you're watching PBS. You can see I did my homework. You heard Deepak Chopra say, become aware of the one who is watching, and you immediately popped out the back of your body and into the witness. Let's talk about that a little bit. You know, it's interesting because every time I share that at a group or whatever, usually somebody will have the experience as well. So let's do that again. So he said, 
become aware of the one who is watching. And here it is. Yeah, nice. In your case, when you had that shift, it never left you. But to play devil's advocate, there are people who advocate and people who listen to them. They make a conscious effort throughout the day to be aware of the one who's watching, be aware of the one who's watching. To me, that speaks of a sort of manipulation that is kind of unnatural. I bet you that in your case, it's not something you have had to do ever since watching, seeing that TV show with Deepak. It's just something that has been a natural feature of your way of functioning. Am I right? Well, boy, this is, as you know, Rick, pretty challenging to talk about. Mm -hmm. And the way I look at it is, it really depends on what's happening. There's no problem with getting completely immersed in whatever you're focusing on, whatever your activity is, whatever <laughs> trauma is coming up. Mm -hmm. But that's always there, and there's sort of a confidence in it over time, right? It's sort of like you don't have to keep checking because it's, it's just there, it's known. Like breathing, or like yeah. being cleaner because you took a shower in the morning. It's just there. It's just there. So there's not a seeking for it, and there is also a loving of it. So yeah. I still love to just be quiet, be silent, yeah. and sort of almost luxuriate in that. It's delicious. Or another example would be like being awake in the ordinary waking state. I mean, you wake up in the morning, and you go through your day, and you don't have to keep thinking, I am awake, I'm awake, I'm not sleeping, I'm awake. You know, it's just you're in the waking state, just the natural way you are until you go to sleep. To me, that higher consciousness or witnessing or any of these things should be that natural. And it is. All that ever happens is our attention goes elsewhere. So it's pretty basic, really. Yeah. That's my take on it anyway. And the reason I make a point of it is I think people can tie themselves up in knots, manipulating their mind and trying to do two things at once and, oh, who am I? And yet I have to make this phone call. And, you know, it actually increases mental agitation sometimes if people go about it in a kind of an unnatural way. That's my little pet peeve. <laughs> yeah, and I think sometimes with practices, there is almost like a period, it's sort of like a, a bridge where you have a realization and there's a period of stabilizing or embodying it, let's say. Yeah. And so during that period, it can be awkward or it seems Fragile. like it has to be intentional. You mm -hmm. have to, we can talk about how true that is, but that's the experience. And then it's like, what's that thing? I learned this in coaching, but it's in psychology too. There's sort of unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious, I don't, I forget how it goes, until you get to the point where you're, like when you're learning to drive a standard. Yeah. At first you have to think of all the, your two feet and whatever, and then after a while you can shift without thinking about it, shift gears, right? And that's drive, a good point. Steer. Yeah, that's so a very yeah, good it's point. like that. So you do have to be intentional for a while often, yeah. depending on what's happened, and mm -hmm. then, yeah, then it becomes more natural. Yeah, point well taken. Sports are like that too, like if you're learning to ski, you might be taking lessons and you're kind of paying attention to your technique and everything and then after a while it gets kind of the muscle memory you know just kind of automatic and you don't think about it much you just spontaneously do it the right way yeah exactly so why would it be any different because we're sort of training the mind or whatever so the same yeah and from what all that we know about neuroplasticity and and so on it's we are literally sculpting the brain and establishing new grooves so to speak in the way it functions Sure. Okay, good. So after your Deepak 
awakening. <laughs> he said <laughs> everything began to accelerate. You began having spontaneous awakenings or insights that were quite transformative. It was a really intense period, I have to say. A couple things happened. One is I met someone who became my partner who had been with a guru. Up until that time, I was just going around not knowing what was happening to me. And he came along, so he was able to sort of put some context around what was happening. And he was also really very present and conscious, so that was probably supportive as well. But I remember one time in particular, a couple times, where reality just woke up. And I mean, the awareness of what's actually happening here became known for the first time, not just that background of awareness, but what's happening here in the apparent world of form. And so one time I was sitting in the backseat of a car and we we're driving down the road. And I just turned and looked beside me and suddenly went into unity consciousness and recognized the person beside me and I were one. And that was beautiful, it was pure love. And then I noticed, I actually could see the full egoic structure operating that they were so boxed in with their reality and identified, I could see it was weird, I don't know how I saw it, but I knew they were identified with their car, this is me and mine and their body, and purposefully ignoring or denying their oneness with me and all of life. So it was the first time I actually saw the ego and how it works, and it was quite shocking. Of course, the first time I saw it externally, and then later I would see it in myself. But yeah, it was like, wow. Interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking of a poem right now. Who was we're ordinarily boxed up in the chinks of our cavern. I forget who that mm. was. You almost made it sound like that's intentional, that one is kind of in one's ego and here's my car and this is me. But it's something that one has to hold on to to keep it going that way and that if you relaxed, it would go away. Wow, that's really neat you picked up on that. And so I would say it's not conscious. And on that level, we couldn't say that person's intentionally doing that. It's just maybe we'll say learned how the identification starts to happen. Ingrained, so, habituated. Yeah, but there's something there that knows it's doing it, but we're not conscious of it. That's kind of what the experience was. Does that resonate, Rick? It does, and if it were truly intentional, then in a totally conscious way, then it should be something we should just be able to drop at a moment's notice when it was pointed out to us or when we wanted to drop it. But exactly. obviously that's not people's experience. Exactly. It's not conscious. And that's why in these moments of illumination, that's when it's seen the rest of the time. I've never seen that before. Right. So, yeah, it was just there's a, a teaching called the miracle of love and the masters of that who've since passed over. They talk about it as the illusion. I'm not an expert in their teaching, but it's just that just popped into mind. It's like we don't know how we're creating the sense of separation because there's sort of they talk about sort of a mass illusion and then a, maybe a, a personal experience of that or joel goldsmith talks about um, the world mind hypnosis so it, it is it's a kind of hypnosis but we're not conscious of it neither would be someone who's been hypnotized you know on stage or something right they wouldn't be aware that they're going around barking like a poodle or, or whatever it is <laughs> I think uh, zooming out to a cosmic perspective on it, if we take non-duality seriously and if it's really all one, mm -hmm. you know, if we are God sort of having a human experience, then it almost seems like consciousness intentionally shrouds itself in the process of interacting with itself in, and thereby giving rise to the appearance of forms and embodying itself in those forms. But it, it's just part of the divine play. Sounds good to me. I mean, it's one thing if there's an underlying realization of oneness and that this separation is an appearance. 
obviously that's a very different experience than, than believing we're separate, cut off from the source. So maybe we could say, well, the word that just came to me was corruption. Not sure I like that, but maybe a distortion would be better on top of whatever conscious. And of course, yeah, if there is only God, what else? Omnipresence, right? What else could there be? But a lot of teachings talk about how this distortion happens and it limits our experience. So I don't know. No, that's good. There's a, there's a Sanskrit word phrase, uh, pragya parat, which means mistake of the intellect. And that at some kind of primordial initial emergence level, a mistake is made and, and then that corruption, as to use your word, gets sort of multiplied and magnified and, and, and more and more and more enmeshed in delusion as, as greater and greater apparent diversification happens. And then we have to retrace our steps eventually. <laughs> <laughs> what you said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you took Reiki classes. So during that period, there were quite a few moments of that of just seeing through this sort of fictional part, this mind-made separation. But there was this also real increase in intensity going on. Seeking and looking for, you know, what is this and how does it become stable? And I was introduced to a number of teachers and books and all of that. So it was a really potent time. What age range were you in then? Early 30s, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, you said you were in a relationship with this guy. I was going to ask as a broader question, it's a little out of context of what we're talking about right now, but whether you have found all this intensity and all this kind of evolutionary fervor to have been conducive or uh, not conducive, inconducive to relationships, partnerships. Wow, good question. It's not what I thought you were going to ask. That's funny. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask if it was conducive to, you know, awakening or whatever we want to well, call it. Well, definitely this. conducive to that, I would say. Yeah. But sometimes people find it hard to straddle both worlds, you know, the pedal to the metal awakening track with some semblance of normalcy in the world track. Well, okay. And, and so in my case, I would say then this wasn't a normal relationship. Mm -hmm. It was really all about the spiritual unfoldment and that was really our common ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was love and all of that stuff, but no. And it was, I think, pretty clear that, very soon anyway, after that, this was the priority. Do you mind my asking, and is it relevant, what guru that guy had been with? Adida. Oh, I was, for some reason I was thinking that. Where are you? Are you picking up on the psychic realm there? I don't know <laughs> why. And also someone, I can't remember his name off the top, but someone who was with Maharishi as well, because my partner had been to MIU and... Mm -hmm. I think he got his degree there and he was a uh, he did all the cities and was a hmm. advanced practitioner whatever you call that probably in that him. system several people i've interviewed who are with adida and boy he was a conundrum oh i agree <laughs> definitely i was never attracted there but yeah. it was just again having been in that whole realm it was helpful to me because he had the experience with maharishi and adida and, and this other fellow that he was with Okay, so then I was going to start talking about the Reiki classes and the, the visitations from divine beings, which uh, seem to result from awakenings and that the Reiki was triggering. Yeah, how that ended up happening was I was staying with my parents for a while and my dad brought this book home called Healing from the Inside Out by Sherry Pearl. And he'd seen it at the library and it was a young woman who'd also been ill in her 20s. I don't remember if her illness was cancer as well. But when I read it, it opened up this whole other thing about the pot. She had been healed mm -hmm. by a um, famous healer from England, whose name escapes me at the moment. 
So that's what sort of planted the seeds that led to me apparently taking the, the healing training, Reiki and whatever else. Mm. It's funny, a couple times in the unfoldment, and this was one of them, I went to a public talk on Reiki and I got up and I felt hands, there was nobody standing there, so we're talking angelic or whatever, hands pushing me forward to go and talk to the teacher. I just heard myself say, okay, I'm signing up. So it was one of those things where I wasn't driving that bus mm. and it happened. And it turned out really great because with each level you study, there's something called an attunement. And with each attunement, I had openings, awakenings, whatever you want to call them. And I had visitations from beings from other dimensions that were informing me about my path mm. and that this was part of it. And it was very pure the energy and the experience. So I feel like it was significant somehow. That's neat. I bet you some people are thinking now, gee, I wish I'd have visitations from beings from other dimensions who inform me about my path. <laughs> I have a friend who quite routinely sees all this subtle stuff and, and he says that in any given situation there are more subtle beings in a room than there are gross beings. That, that Each of us have like usually two or three of them in attendance that are kind of helping us in ways that he doesn't fully understand, but that seems very uh, important. I would agree with that completely. And when we get to talking about it, the when I started doing what I'm doing now, um, the room is pretty much packed when I'm doing a session. And mm. it's it's not something I invoke or anything. It just it just happens. And I agree with your friend. It's not like it's understood. It's wonderful and it's helpful and it's a real privilege to be aware of it. I think we all are. Just it's just tuning into that channel. I was communicating with a friend the other day who is, like myself, an old ex-TM teacher. We used to do a ceremony of gratitude when we instructed people in TM, and we'd kind of recite the names of the tradition of masters going back thousands of years um, from whom that teaching came. And she said, well, you know, when you did that, didn't you see them in the room? And I said, no, I didn't have, there was a profound feeling, but I didn't see them in the room. She said, well, you were invoking them. They all came, uh, you know, so they're all they're all there on, on the other side, if we want to call it that. And, um, you know, they can be invoked and, uh, you know, can intercede or have various influences. Yes, and it's wonderful, actually. It makes life very rich. So when I started doing Reiki, I didn't realize that I don't have a belief system about this, but it's a useful mm -hmm. metaphor, whether it's true or not, is if we talk about past lives, it's like maybe this was where, where it came in from, medicine you brought in from another life. But from pretty much the first time I did a treatment, this other vision opened up and I could see people's departed loved ones mm -hmm. or one time... I was working on a pregnant woman and it was like watching the Discovery Channel. I suddenly was like watching this cameras pan down the fetus and huh. saw the sex of the baby and the color of its hair and things that they all proved true. So I'm, I'm like, I didn't know it was extraordinary, but it was a time of great delight and wonder and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. That's cool. It we're was gonna, cool. We're going to get to a point in your story where all this goes away, at least for a while, tipping people off to that. but. Would you agree with this? Would you say that all this stuff is wonderful and, and interesting if it's happening, but that people shouldn't make it a goal to put that their first priority to see this subtle stuff? If it happens as a side effect of a deeper shift that's taking place, then, then great. I completely agree with that. Yeah, for me, it's not, uh, it's not something that we as an apparent individual are, want to be driving. 
were almost like recipients or instruments or whatever is more is more appropriate. So yeah, I, I never go looking for it. It's just there. So just one other thing that comes to mind, I'm not sure if I put this in the notes, that happened when I was doing Reiki, that a couple things that caused a big turn in my life. One of which was while doing a Reiki session, first of all, I started to notice after a while that I was taking credit for it. So mm -hmm. some ego was getting in there. So that was noticed. So that was kind of like, okay, red flag. But at the same time, paradoxically, what was also happening is this desire to serve, this selfless sense of selfless service was coming up. And my heart was really breaking open. And I was feeling this incredible love for people when I was working on them. Mm. And this one session in particular, I think it might have been the last one I did, I just completely disappeared into love and being a divine instrument. Mm. And it was I just, there was nobody there. It was just love. And so that that was like, okay, this is what's important, not being a healer or any of the rest of this. It's about serving and it's about love. I love that. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. That's it. Prayer of St. Francis. That's it, Rick. Amen yeah. to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that really almost erupted from my heart. I'd been building for a long time, but in this one particular session, it reached this intensity of, wow, this, that's all. And also, of course, a recognition of oneness. That's beautiful. Again, if it's all consciousness, then we are all instruments of the divine. But the divine is multi-faced. As Bob Dylan saying, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. <laughs> and it's a, a blessing and I think a choice to a certain extent to put oneself in the service of the more positive qualities that the divine would like to infuse into the world. Of course, there also need to be destructive qualities and so on because it's, it's a world of polarities. But it's better to be on the white hat team, in my opinion, as far as one's own enjoyment is concerned. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'll second that motion. <laughs> I like the way we're doing this where I'm reading stuff, but you're kind of interjecting if there's something that I'm leaving out or that your notes are leaving out. So your meditations were deepening, your spiritual search was intensifying, sitting four hours a day and having many insights and releases. Nice quote from Ananda Maima came along that touched you to the core. It was something about stopping short of nothing but prior to full self-realization and that all the experiences could be a distraction from that main goal. Right, and so that sort of coincided with that experience I was just describing of breaking open into love and the desire to serve as and the you know the selflessness at the same time that quote came to me and I had been sitting longer and longer each day mm -hmm. and just going deeper and deeper into that inner reality it was pretty blissful as I'm sure you know but those two things came together and then it, it's like I don't know it's been a long time but probably the experience was that I just completely lost interest in that other dimension. And I think some of the other teachings were saying, you know, this stuff is a distraction. Once there's self-realization, then you can do what you want. Yeah. And it, it just, there was, the yearning was there anyway. And between that and that selfless service, that recognition of oneness, it's almost like the search got really focused and amped up at that point. Patanjali says that in the Yoga Sutras actually, he says that this involvement with celestial beings can be a distraction or can be a, a stumbling block, you know, can get caught up in it, waylaid on your path. Yeah, I think that's true, and I, I've certainly seen it. Perhaps I had an advantage in the sense that I never went seeking for that, it just showed up. And I, I always saw it as an incredible gift or bonus. Mm. 
but the, the true seeking for enlightenment or whatever we want to call it, that was the thing. That was primary. But it's interesting because many years later, this will probably come up, but many years later, this curiosity started coming, okay, where did all that stuff go? Because it was like everything withers from disuse or right. whatever. So, that yeah. to which we give our attention grows stronger Gross. in our lives. Yeah. 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 Down in New Orleans, when you buy something, they'll throw something a little extra in the bag, and it's called the lanyap. I always remember that word. All this flashy stuff, it's just a little something extra that might get thrown in the bag as we go along, but it's not the main <laughs> product that you're, that you're going for. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love that. Yeah. Good. Okay, so then a major awakening happened through the breakup of that relationship that you referred to. Your heart broke open into a greater love and you fell into God communion. So powerful that repercussions of it echoed through the next 15 years. So everybody's been through breakups. It's something that people all want to understand more and perhaps would appreciate understanding the evolutionary significance of rather than seeing it as merely a trauma or a heartbreak. So let's talk about that a little bit. Please forgive me because I don't actually remember what happened in what order. So doesn't I might matter. have it a little bit out of order there, but it doesn't matter. Well, the first thing was that that relationship on the human level was very challenging. Spiritually, it was great, but there were some issues, really big issues. One of them was in the area of commitment or lack thereof. And, you know, I can see it very differently now, but the commitment here was actually for God anyway. So to accuse the other of being uncommitted was, a, a, you know, a little questionable anyway. <laughs> but yeah. for some reason, life used that. As you said, there's only life. And so this intensity came. But I think, Rick, part of it was because this man wasn't just my partner, he was my mentor, my guru, my guide. There was so much more to it. That couldn't have been 100% the case because you've got so much going on that you must have been his guide to a very great extent as well. Well, how lovely for you to say, and perhaps that's true, and, and we, we'd have to ask him. Maybe we can patch him in later. But, <laughs> <laughs> but for me at first, I was much younger and very new to the spiritual journey. Mm. So thank you, uh, Rick, we can clarify that. with He'd been on the journey for, what, 10, 20 years, whatever, was older than I. In and this, I was in this, this lifetime. In this lifetime. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, exactly, right? right. In this lifetime. So it, there was sort of that position of you've got an artist and his protege or whatever. That was an unbalanced footing that we were standing on because of that. And you're absolutely right. It was really just a experiential or perception, but for sure there was a lot going on here. Yeah. So I'm sure that had an effect as well. And, it, and he certainly has told me that. However, on the human level, there was some old programming or whatever playing, and suddenly I was like, okay, something needed to balance that sense of disempowerment from being in, in that uneven footing. Mm. So there was a breakup, and there was incredible pain, partly because of how much more he was to me. He was also sort of a father figure, even though I have a great relationship with my father. Again, life used that, and there was a real deep despair and breakdown. It was very intense. However, I just use that to go into God. I'm preparing to interview Andrew Harvey next week. I don't know if you know Andrew Harvey, but uh, a delightful person. But anyway, he talks about, he talks a lot about the uh, breaking open of the heart and how he mentions how even certain saints have sort of prayed for their heart to be broken as much as possible. It's like, you know, lay it on me, Lord. And I just, I just want it to break wide open so I can be 
you know, to love you fully. Well, that's it, exactly. And of course, I wasn't consciously really on, I didn't have a guru or whatever guiding me. Mm-hmm. You know, I had some help, but it wasn't a conscious recognition that that's what was happening. But that's where it took me. And that's exactly, it's the best thing ever when the heart breaks open. It's just exquisite. Even the pain of it, it can be exquisite. So I just went deeper and deeper. There was this combination of exquisite pain and going deeper and deeper into God. So I was, I'll say praying, because I don't know what other word to use, but, you know, God had become the complete center of my life anyway. So that's where I turned Mm -hmm. uh, with this pain and was didn't what you know didn't have a big enough view of it to go oh please take me into god communion just it was more like please get me out of this pain right but that's what happened is there was a deeper surrender there was actually it even changed my outer form there was more radiance and it was quite noticeable and i, I just really fell into that space nice my devil's advocate thought was just that um, you know the world is full of pain and so many tragic things have happened. I mean, we can itemize some of the more notorious of them: the, the Holocaust and school shootings and Boko Haram kidnapping those girls and just all kinds of horrible things that happen in the world all the time. And it may seem a little glib to just say, "Oh yes, trauma or, or tragedy breaks open your heart, so you can love God more." Tell that to somebody whose children have, have just been shot or something. So how do you reconcile that? And also, how do you reconcile that along with the notion that God is omnipresent and merciful and that everything is ultimately in the best interests of our spiritual unfoldment? How does somebody who's not open to the understanding or experience that tragedy is a gift in some sense from God deal with tragedy as compared with someone who like yourself, who might be blessed with that understanding. Okay, so first of all, let's say this. Right now, I'm just speaking from my own life experience. Mm -hmm. That's really good you interjected there. So I'm not making a blanket statement that everything harmful is for that purpose. Maybe I'll say that later. But right now, I'm just talking about what happened for me. So that's the first thing. So thank you for interjecting there. You had an advantage in a way, you see, because, I mean, here you had been on this spiritual path, and so it wasn't just, oh, my God, my boyfriend broke up with me. It was more like, oh, this really hurts, but okay, God, you know. (laughs) It's like immediately the attention is still in that profound direction that it had been directed in. I think we might chew on this one a few times, Rick, because right now I'm sort of in that storyline, but I would say that... It just about killed me. It was so painful. So I'm not downplaying that or anybody else's heartbreak. There's a lot of ways to talk about this. You can say anybody who has faith, who goes to church, who prays, maybe that can alleviate as well. So it's a big topic that you've brought in. I think we need to take it in chunks. And it does actually. I mean, that shooting in Charleston, South Carolina a few months ago where that guy was in the church and sat through a prayer meeting then shot everybody in the meeting and it's like the the very next day the relatives of those people were saying we forgive you and we love you and i think Mm. i thought man how did they do that it was really very impressive oh no kidding it's it's stunning really it's amazing it's to me it's grace this whole thing is grace so i don't look at I know what you're saying but for me i of my own self could not have broken my heart open Mm. it was grace it was grace that's a good um, point, you know, we, we don't intentionally put our feet to the fire, we withdraw them. Yeah, 
yeah, and, and every moment of this has only been grace. There isn't anybody who can take credit for it. So we're going to break that into chunks. Do you have another chunk? No, my sense is it, we're going to touch back on it a okay. couple of times. Okay, great. Then we probably will. Then, then moving on a little bit. This interested me. You said you continued the meditation and began to experience a painful contrast, total bliss while sitting, but then losing it when you interacted with people and situations. And the reason that interested me is that that was never my experience. My experience was always more along the lines of the cloth and dye analogy, which you probably heard, where you know you dip a cloth in the dye and then bleach it in the sun, and it loses its color over time in the sun, but a little bit remains. Then you dip it again, then bleach it again, and a little bit more remains. And each time, you know, a little bit more remains. So, for me, it was never a black and white on and off kind of thing. The the bliss of meditation carried over to a certain extent and, and naturally wore off, but then kept getting recharged and just got more and more and more stable over time. Was that also your experience or was it really as black and white as you indicate here? No, it was closer to what you're talking about. I guess what I'm really referring to there is, you know, it's that whole thing of no stone left unturned. And so whatever remaining neuroses, whatever, limitations, mm. patterns, that were still operating in me, those were getting slammed. And that's really what I'm talking about. And it was and kicking up the dust as those things unraveled. Absolutely. And I was living with my partner at this particular time I'm talking about. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'd have my meditation room, I'd go in the hallway and maybe he'd be grumpy or whatever. There'd be an interaction and, I, the, you know, the reactions were still coming up. But uh, the rest of the time there was this incredible peace. Mm -hmm. Sure, it was there underneath, but I, I, there were just something was like, okay, the contrast between that reactionary behavior, between any of that and what reality was, this deeper reality, it created a, a friction, a tension. It was inviting something. Did you find that the deeper the surrender during meditation, the more effective that consciousness could be as a solvent for these pent-up things that needed to be resolved? Yes, I would say though that up until this point, I was just sitting and dissolving and it, I don't know how embodied it was. So what comes next is, and, I, and it feels to me like this is part of what was happening, but the blanket answer is yes, absolutely. There was just greater awareness at all times, less reactivity generally. So it was just those particular patterns that were still operating, but I guess what became known is that it needed to be more embodied. That's really what, I, as I would say, the bottom line was there. The relationship was helping you embody it or? <laughs> Only the hardest way. By this point, things were not going that well. At the Science and Non-Duality Conference, I'm going to moderate a discussion between Hamid Ali, A.H. Amas and Karen Johnson about non-dual relationships, and which in a way is sort of an oxymoron non-dual relationships. The embodiment word is all the rage these days because I think a lot of people went through a phase of hiding out in the non-dual either conceptually or actually experientially and then realizing that wait a minute I'm a human being and I have a life to live here and how do I integrate this? Just the point we've been addressing there seems to be this clash between the, the sort of the peace of the transcendent and the hurly-burly of, of my actual life. So let's talk about that more. I think part of it is just uh, misunderstanding. Like There's how? lots of them, but one is that when I first started teaching, let's jump ahead a little bit. The first thing I did was I would guide people through 
being in this beautiful state, recognizing awareness, with your eyes closed, perfectly still. Then I'd say, okay, open your eyes, find it there, stand up, find it there, move around, find it there. Because it's almost like the form can encourage that. It's the same thing with teaching. There's somebody sitting in the chair and that lends itself to the idea that there's an expert here. Same thing with meditation, you sit in that on that cushion or in that posture. It can, if you're not aware of it, bring up this unconscious idea that I that's where I have to be in order to be in that place. Mm. So it's not true but it needs to be seen that there's no special posture needed. I mean, it's wonderful to put down deeper roots and put all your investment in that for a period each day, great, no problem. But as you say, it needs to bleed out and it really does. Just kind of a lot was going on in this particular thing and it was creating this friction of, okay, I know this is real and I feel it all the time and there's still these intense reactions coming up mm -hmm. and there was just a need to embody it more. So I think that's true for a lot of people. It's not separate from us, it is us, but we need to know that. I think people know what we mean by embodiment, but just in case it would be valuable, why don't you just define it? Well, now it's very simple for me. I literally mean in the body. What's in the body? You. What we are, not just in some abstract sense of this beautiful awareness or stillness around us, but to know that is also within the very cells. It's like you're, you're walking it, it's walking you. There's no separation. So it's not conceptual, it's not special, it's not exclusive, it's not limited to certain circumstances and contexts. It's constant and omnipresent. And is there anything that one could or should do intentionally to embody the transcendent if they have access to the transcendent to to integrate it or is it something that's going to happen automatically just through the process of living well uh both i and, think and is it and by the same token is it something one can retard by trying to hang on to the transcendent and to the exclusion of actual bodied life well i think you know that phrase i can't remember who coined it spiritual bypassing Robert Augustus Masters talked about it, and there was somebody before him who, who coined it, yeah. And I think, again, this is another thing that became conscious, is meditation was, let's say, just for fun, 90% authentic and real and nourishing, and 10% an escape from these things that were still troublesome. Mm -hmm. So to the degree it's an escape, I would say there needs to be a, that degree of grounding. So what we're trying to escape when we talk about the non-dual, we can talk about this a bit more, but there's a danger. Pamela Wilson, who a friend who I love, I'm sure you do too, oh, yeah. she talks about things being from the nose up or the nose down. And so we just have to make sure that, or be watchful, attentive to, if our realization is really up here, that's when we won't be experiencing it as we're walking through life or aware that we are. And as you know, Adyashanti talks about realization in the head, heart, and gut. And I think he would probably say that it tends to start in the head. Maybe it's different for different people, but that it kind of moves down as we get more and more embodied and grounded. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I've certainly had three major openings uh, in those areas. So yeah, I agree. Probably the next thing on the note there, just say, so how this got resolved was the intensity, there was, again, there, there was a lot of fire here. <laughs> I don't know if I should put that in past tense or not, but the fire was really burning like, okay, I need to know God and know this 100%. My own efforts seemed to be creating more tension, again, that contrast, and it actually reached a breaking point. 
uh, this isn't logical. It's just how it unfolded. And plus, I'm also, I can only remember so much of it, but just the highlight was. What kind of efforts were creating more tension? So it was like, I, the me that I thought I was, I'm doing everything I can. I'm sitting four hours a day. I'm reading all these books, blah, blah, blah. And I'm still having these reactions to my partner. I see. So, you know what I mean? Despite my best efforts, yeah. it ain't working. And this happened to me a couple of times, but this one was, it's like, okay, something just broke. And as, as it tends to be fairly dramatic here, it was like, this is it. I'm not doing one more minute of meditation until I can find something that's, staple, mm. lasting, permanent, never comes and goes. And it was a moment of deep surrender, the loss of all sense of self, breaking open into the divine. And then that was it. I, I stopped meditating that moment. That was it. I don't know if that had to be the, the way of going about it, because I don't know if necessarily continuing to meditate in any way prevents you from arriving at that which is which doesn't come and go. But it's the way you did it. So. No, and I'm certainly not saying that. Again, this is just my so-called my story. Yeah. And I, I thank you, Rick, for clarifying that. I'm definitely not making a blanket statement. And by the way, I do still meditate. I do again. Yeah. But I'm just talking about one of the dramatic moments where more of the ego death, more of the surrender, more of the recognition, I of my own self can't do this. Life used this intensity as a way to surrender. This is what happened. It was a big moment. And it must have been kind of interesting to see after all those years of meditation what would happen if you stopped doing it, what you lost, what you didn't lose. Yeah, and the thing is that didn't last very long because that we can, you know, I'm not implying cause and effect, cause and effect, but we could say it was, but it was right after that someone showed up at my house mm -hmm. with a book. Power of and Now. It's the power of now. Mm -hmm. And what got my attention is First of all, I didn't see the book at first. The friend was just talking about this man who spent two years on a park bench. And at that time, when I wasn't meditating and I did just the minimal amount of work to function, like bare minimum, the rest of the time I sat on a park bench oh. by the river. Yeah. So there was like this bing, it was like <laughs> something new. There was a connection there. Yeah. So it got my attention. Then he pulled the book out of his backpack and handed it to me and I just touched it. Uh -huh. And I just felt this and by then I knew that meant this was something important. Yeah. And so I very rudely said, see ya, left the poor guy sitting there, drove over to the New Age bookstore, got a copy, <laughs> rushed out to my backyard under the apple tree and started to read it. Now that was very magical when you talk about that, but it was, I had found just that surrender immediately led to this experience or this experience happened right after that. And it was the answer to what I was looking for. It's kind of neat. I mean, I've, I've actually interviewed people who were in a bookstore and a certain book would actually literally fall off the shelf and land at their feet, you know, and then they pick it up and they open it up to a certain page <laughs> and right there on that page is exactly what they needed to hear. <laughs> Don't you love those stories? I, I think know. That's it's so like, special. it kind of harkens back to the little beings that are following us around. They're, they're probably helping to orchestrate these things. No doubt. And thank you to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, just as, as an aside, because fine intelligence and the, the divine is omnipresent, but within that omnipresence, within the ocean, there are currents. And so there are impulses of intelligence within the ocean of intelligence, and those impulses of intelligence are sentient beings who operate on one level or another and perform certain functions, such as pushing books off shelves if necessary. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I love that. <laughs>
So you entered your Eckhart Tolle phase, and is that the way it's pronounced? Yes. Tolle or Toll? Uh, it's actually neither, but we Toll. I can't do the true pronunciation. Tolle is better. Yeah, something like Tolle. I can't remember. I used to know, but it's a long time ago. <laughs> German. And so you started writing letters to Eckhart and uh, to his publishing company, anyway, and some of them were shared with him. Yeah, what was really cool is I read the introduction and like probably lots of other people, I, I, something just, my heart was just singing with, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. And there was such resonance. And then as I read the book, I was having these experiences mm -hmm. of what the teaching was going to do and whatever. And so I was sharing them and some of them got passed on to Eckhart. So it was neat. But the main thing is I right away contacted to see if, if there's some way I could meet Eckhart in person. And it turned out he was coming to Calgary where I lived soon after that. So that was pretty cool. And tell the story about how you actually met him. Yeah, it's wonderful. I call it my Yogananda moment. The first meeting of the day was somebody had arranged a luncheon with a bunch of people and Eckhart was the guest speaker or whatever. And it was on a busy college campus. So we got there and parked and I was walking towards the door and there's all these people and students and teachers and whatever and the people coming to the luncheon. And this man walked right up to me, one of however many people and said something like, I know for certain you must be Karen. And he'd never seen my picture or heard my voice or anything. And I had seen the picture in the book jacket, but it wasn't until he said that and I was looking at him that I realized, oh, it's Zachart. Uh -huh. So that was pretty special. Yeah, that's neat. Did he ever talk about that later on, about how he knew it was you? Probably, so I, but I don't remember. So great. So later that day, you had an opportunity to sit with him and a recognition happened in which your sense of boundaries dissolved. You knew yourself to be the whole universe. My sense of it is that it was the first time that I sat with somebody who there, were, there was nobody there. So there was absolutely no projections or expectations or he didn't want anything from me. And that combined with his very spacious realization, state of being, there was a resonance and I can still feel it. It's still rippling out into eternity. I have a question about Eckhart actually, since I may or may not ever get a chance to interview him. He's pretty reclusive. He's written several books. I've, I think I've read them all. But he doesn't talk about his own experience too much anymore, as I see it. And do you, do you get a sense that, like you, like you and like most people, since the awakening he describes in The Power of Now, there's been a vast, vast sort of deepening or unfoldment or refinement or something, and that, he, and that he's still kind of breaking new ground? Well, all I can really tell you is from my own perception and experience. Mm -hmm. What I can say is when I first met Eckhart, he seemed almost transparent. He was so light. The last time I spoke to him, which is a few years now, but this would be maybe 10 years later, I don't know. I was speaking to him and the difference to me was palpable. Okay, there's the X factor of how much more had it become embodied here, whatever. But I felt he had become so embodied compared to before. I will say, though, that I think with Eckhart, the thing there is that he is, I don't think he'd mind me saying, he's very much an introvert, as am I, but his is even more so. That's part of why he doesn't share a lot about his experience. Plus, he doesn't think the teacher's the thing, right? The important thing to focus on. He used to say that to us all the time. Right. But I, in my experience of him, I feel like that state of presence is probably just the same, and it feels more grounded to me. Yeah, I would agree the teacher isn't the thing, but I think it's interesting when teachers and people do relate their experience because it helps to clarify the roadmap and helps people understand that there is this ongoing development. And 
you know, and we begin to sort of flesh out the details of it. And, and as we hear more and more of these stories, there tends to be a, a kind of an agreement or convergence between different people's stories. And you, get, you just kind of get a sense of how vast the whole thing is, which is, I think, helpful. I think the more as a, as a spiritual community in the greater sense we can understand where we're going, there's less and less likelihood of thinking that we have arrived and that, that, that that's all there is to it, you know, which, which some people say, you know, they, they don't like any talk of levels or progress or anything else. But the fact of the matter is, speaking honestly and realistically, people keep progressing unless they get stuck. Oh, you know, I completely agree with you. And, and if Eckhart ever wrote a true if there was a biography or an autobiography that really, I, I'd be the first one to buy it. I would love to hear, you know, I only had a few snippets and all the time I spent with him, just a few snippets about what happened in his unfolding. And I would love to hear it. And I always felt, well, after a while, I felt it was almost a disservice not to have that story shared. I totally agree with you. Even though his was extraordinary, I suppose they all are. Yeah. yeah, what what was it like? And there, was, there were a few things he shared that really had an impact on me. And I, I think this is something I agree with you. I feel like ultimately there's only one, and it, but it's expressing as these unique individuals. And the more that we share, the more it serves everyone. And I also found, and I was guilty of this myself when I was, for a while I volunteered as Eckhart's secretary. And I noticed in myself, you know, there was this tendency I had to really be conscious of to try to present that he was perfect. You know, this whole thing we do with gurus, and then we right. look at some of the great gurus and the stuff that was going on in the background there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've learned a lot since then. But yeah, there's this thing we want them to be perfect, and by ignoring their humanness and their what they go through, you're right, it, it doesn't serve, if you ask me. Well, whenever I kind of imagine myself interviewing Eckhart, th this is the line it would take, you know, and, and really sort of trying to grill him on, on all the stages of development that he's undergone in the last 15 years or 20 years or however long it's been. So uh, if that appeals to you, Eckhart, call me. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, if I think I'm people would enjoy hearing it. Yeah, put in a word. Yeah, I will, certainly. And not to belabor the point, but I, I just really think that, you know, both in terms of what you just said, in terms of the fact that people are human and they still have their warts and, and whatnot, but also in terms of the, just the pure spiritual unfoldment that takes place. The more we can hear accounts of it, the, the better we can understand. If only Lewis and Clark had gone across the U.S. and, and back, we'd have a very rudimentary understanding of the topography of, of the U.S. You know, but now it's all been mapped out in such great detail, every square inch, you know, is... is mapped with GPS and whatnot. So it could be that way with spirituality too, that rather than have it be a vague conjectural thing in many people's minds with so many people defining the same terms differently and therefore not actually communicating, the whole thing could be really developed far more thoroughly in the culture and, and become really a, a part of our clear understanding, which I think would be tremendously helpful for the evolution of our civilization and if not the survival of it. Sure. And, you know, it's part of why we have so many different systems, too, because, you know, like, look at the, I can't remember, it's been a long time since I studied it, what is it, the eight paths of yoga, right. depending on your Shtanga temperament. Yoga, right. You know, so there's bhakti and all that stuff, oh, all those things, right. the intellect, yeah. the heart, mm -hmm. so as long as it would be inclusive enough. But I, I agree with you, and I feel like, it's funny, as you said that, what came to me is I feel like that will happen, and it is starting to happen. But I agree. I can understand why some teachers are reluctant to share that stuff because 
everybody's experience is unique, but I tend to go more with your view, if I'm hearing you right, which is the more that the more examples we have, the more likely it is we're going to find something that's closer to what's happening to us. And for myself, you know, there's no complaint about the way things unfolded. And I understand now it sort of had to be the way it was, let's say. However, how much suffering could have been avoided had I had a guide at certain points or a teaching or whatever. So I'm, I'm with you on that one, Rick. And as long as we all understand that everyone's experience is unique and that I am not going to experience everything Karen experiences, it's still interesting to hear what Karen has experienced and what this person and that person and the other person has experienced. It, you just listen to enough of them and, and it, it's very enriching. It's very helpful in, in a number of ways. And, and again, without like getting fixated on needing to experience something because somebody else did, it may not be that way for you. Yeah, that's a key point. Yeah. yeah. So you really dove into Eckhart's teaching and he eventually invited you to teach, which you began to do. Yeah, and it was, it was wonderful because it was never my intention. All I wanted to do was serve, it was that, that thing of, was still unfolding of selfless service and mm -hmm. oneness and love. And so that was really my motivation was, wow, this is the best thing I've come across so far because it's so practical. Like yeah. I used to say, it, makes, it made presence portable. Very, very practical, very, very grounded. Did he invite many uh, people to teach? Um, I don't know. Just a handful? Back maybe? then, one or two. Okay, you were one of those one or two. I'm sure it's more than that, maybe, but at that, those early stages, there were maybe two, yeah. three, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But... It wasn't like an official organizational thing where, you know, huh. the, the Eckhart Tolle movement and I'm a representative of it, like a TM teacher would be. It was more like, I'm out here teaching and Eckhart's been my inspiration, was it that? Eckhart, in those early days, wasn't interested in having an organization because he could see what would happen with <laughs> the egoic things that get involved with there. Right. But the day we met, he did feel that there would be some sort of organization and I would be part of it. Like mm -hmm. that was sort of, it was just immediately recognized. He invited me and gave me an endorsement and phoned people and asked them to come to my group. But it wasn't like a formal organization at that point. So, right. yeah. Okay. It's interesting though, I will just share this, just a brief example or story about this. When I was volunteering as Eckhart's personal assistant or secretary, whatever, I would get a list of people who had phoned and made inquiries and I would contact them to see what they needed. And I'd make a big list on a yellow legal pad and take it over to Eckhart and he would tune into each one and direct me what to do, hmm. book sessions or whatever. And one day a woman phoned and while she was speaking to me, this clear knowing came that I could help her. I didn't say a word, I didn't write it down, and I took the list later that day to Eckhart and she was X number down on the list and when we got to her, as always, I'd say the person's name and what was happening, he'd get completely still. And then out of nowhere, he said, you can help her. That's cool. I know, and so when things get validated like that, it's pretty exciting and wonderful. Yeah. So that's how it started. It's also cool because, to hear you describe that that's what he did, because it, gives an example of the depth from which he's functioning and, and the clarity of his intuition. I mean, if somebody read me a list like that, I'd say, I don't know, tell him to read this book or tell him to see that teacher. <laughs> but, but I don't think there'd be a, a sort of a deep intuitive knowing of it. But I, I understand how that works and I've seen it in action many times. So it, it's, it's cool to hear that that's the way he was functioning. Yeah, it's, it, was, it was wonderful to be around somebody who lived that way, definitely. Yeah. I also have heard him say that, you know, he doesn't ever plan out his talks or anything. He just stays in the moment, gets in the car, goes up on the stage, opens his mouth, you know, and just start, starts rolling out. Well, and that was a wonderful 
let's say role model for lack of a better word example he was modeling that so it was the same i never planned anything it would just arise out of the presence and you learn to trust it and rely on it he was very authentic in that he also didn't now it was probably different now but back in those days he didn't do any kind of advertising right. it had to be organic word of mouth people came naturally so it was really a good example that was probably pre-oprah yes it was that kind of blew it open Okay, so around this time, the death of a loved one, before that, you said that you had your own unique view of things because you were sharing from your own experience and it began to, be, began to become clear that you needed to leave this path and move on, that this spiritual path was not going to take you all the way, it wasn't going to work. Okay, hang on, those are two separate things. So okay. the first one was, thank you. Again, I'm, I'm just reporting my experience uh -huh. and it is not, it's not logical or anything, but this knowing began to arise in me that I had to move on. Mm -hmm. But mentally, no way. Right. So when those intuitions started to come to me, I ignored them. I was like, I'm not leaving this guy, are you kidding? This is, he's it, this is, this, I found where I belong. And yeah. how awesome to hang out with him. But life was relentless as always and it's, really, I suppose, benevolence. Circumstances came that I ended up moving away, and yeah, so there was just a need for that for whatever reason. Now, I'm not implying that I just pitched that. I mean, obviously, it's still here, but in terms of my own unfolding and what was going to happen, it was something was changing. And there was some drama, which I'm not going to get into here, but there was stuff happened. Sure. So went a different way. Yeah. This is a kind of a crude example, but when you go from high school to college, you don't pitch high school. If you, if you do, you're not going to do very well in college. It's like you have that under, <laughs> you have that under your belt, and okay, now there's this. Yeah, um, well said. I like that very much. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, it was just time to go on to another thing, and around that time, that was the example you're supposed to share. A, a bunch of things happened, but one was there was this clear knowing that this wasn't my message. Hmm. It was Eckhart's and it was perfect for what it was. But I was here for something else. And then close relative died. When that happened, I found myself encountering this chasm of darkness. Hmm. It's like, holy shit, after all this time, here is this, I thought it was gone. One would think, especially with all philosophical understanding that nobody dies and all that jazz. And yeah. No, and that's the mystery of this, Rick, and I think it's, it's such a mystery, but it's this thing, to me it speaks again about embodiment, but whatever, and there's also this thing of the things we go through, traumas, griefs, losses, like, that's one thing, but it felt to me like the darkness I'd felt when I was young mm -hmm. was there underneath, and it, there was something, and what, what happened was I felt like, for me, what became known was I encountered the core wound of the heart. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that was, but that's what was revealed to me. So I spent a year or so sitting with it, and it was like having a blizzard or winter wasteland in my heart center. And I would sit with it, and it eventually was, let's say, dissolved or healed or whatever. But again, consciousness used that because it was the recognition, again, doing this particular practice or whatever wasn't going to take me all the way. The waking down people use that phrase, core wound. I don't know if you're aware of that. Samuel Bonder and that whole group. So when you sat with it for a year, was it sort of like you really had to marinate in some dark stuff in, in order to process it? And you knew that that's what you're doing and you're just kind of processing and processing and just suffering through it until it passed? Pretty much. It was conscious suffering, I would say. That's a good way to put it. And it's the same thing with things that happen, arise now. It, what, what really it was about was just feeling it. 
so whatever had been avoided from what I was doing before had to be met. That's all, really, is what it was. Mm -hmm. Back in the early days, John Gray wrote a book called What You Feel You Can Heal. I think that was it, or What You Can Feel You Can Heal. But basically that you have to feel it to heal it. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah. a lot of what we're doing is we're moving away from things. You know, the, the primal mind, that survival mechanism tries to pull us away from discomfort. Yeah. So it was just really meeting that. And some other things happened at that time that were painful. It was a period of really getting grounded and dealing with the humanness, I would say. And you kind of mentioned at this stage that you rejected all external authorities and, and just came to rely exclusively on internal guidance. And that's what I mean by the recognition that some, so in quote, external mm -hmm. teaching or method wasn't going to take me all the way, that I had to come to the, uh, the Satguru, the, the internal guidance or authority. Have you kind of balanced that out now? Because there's a lot of people around who are sort of into the be your own guru thing and just categorically reject external no, authorities. No, no, no. Yeah. no. So what would you say to that? No. It's not like that, and it wasn't even really like that then. It was more, it wasn't a rejection, it was a turning deeper within, mm -hmm. knowing that the final, well, there's no such thing as final in my opinion, but the depth of realization that was trying to happen, that was happening, I now needed to rely on, let's say, the inner wisdom for that it was yeah. it was that yeah now there was a, there was a pendulum swing because it's been a fairly dramatic unfolding and for a little while i was like okay i'm not going to do anything spiritual but <laughs> in that balance though you know my friends i would i had a joke if they came over to my house they couldn't use the s word spiritual oh. <laughs> for a while so it was just this thing and i took a corporate job and took coaching training and did all this really grounded embodied stuff but the really big real couple of next big realizations that happened came from within i think it's worth pointing out that even if you are involved with an external teacher so to speak such as eckhart tolle or somebody else any actual realization that takes place is an internal process and you know there's the whole pearls before swine principle that a great great teacher could could have a, a bunch of idiots around him and, and nothing is <laughs> going to be transmitted so there has to be a certain depth and receptivity it's really incumbent upon the the student. Well, another analogy is you could have a, a vast reservoir. According to the size of the pipe that you bring up to the reservoir, that much water will flow. So a, a drinking straw, no matter how vast the reservoir, isn't going to allow that much transmission of water. A great big pipe will, you know, result in a gusher. I totally agree. And you know, to be really, language is funny. You know, it, it's to be really, really precise takes more time. But I, I completely agree with you. And what I mean is, so thank you, Rick, this is excellent. Thanks. What I mean to clarify that is, let me see if I can get a little closer to it. There was a tendency, which I think is fairly common, to project to the external as being the source, the savior. Honestly, I hate to admit this, but it's true. It, it took me, like the day I met Eckhart, he said, you're here to teach presence. Hmm. The very first day. Mm -hmm. Okay, but Rick, it took me 10 years to realize that's because it was already here. <laughs> yeah. So a little, little slow here, didn't get it very fast, even though he told me that directly, it's in you. So this is sort of that thing of there's a, you know, Nisargadatta had this wonderful, I'm not sure if I can quite grasp it, but it's something like maybe enlightenment or awakening, whatever. He used the analogy of a fruit tree. The actual realization happens instantaneously. The fruit is ripe, it falls now. Okay, however, he said, 
the, that something like the process of how it ripens and how long that takes and what it needs and how much sunlight and rain and all that, that's a mystery that we don't know. So that's kind of what we're pointing to here. So thank you for getting us back on that track. So what I noticed was a tendency to have everything, the authority was external, not internal. That's the bottom line. And I think it's interesting when people shift from being externally oriented to an, a more internal reliance, there can be a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater and to, to sort of, you know, just reject the thing. But I think a more mature balance would be that one appreciates everything that one has derived from the external authority, but then fully internalizes it and substantiates it in one's own experience. Yeah, that's the ideal. That's the pattern. That's the archetype. So then there's just this question of, you know, in my case, I was really far on the scale of having no sense of internal authority, but I, I totally agree with you. And yeah. it's not like it was rejected, but there was, a, again, sometimes the fire is needed. So I needed to back away from looking to someone else to have my answer or whatever yeah. realization and come within. But there were moments, you know, around this time, I bumped into my friend Pamela Wilson. Uh, let's talk about uh, her in a second. I just wanted to throw in a, oh, a, sure. a note that, um, just to get psychological on you for a moment. <laughs> oh, goody. <laughs> Which I'm totally unqualified to do. But it seems like you did have a little bit of a, a lifelong syndrome of looking to external authorities and having a little bit lack of confidence in your own authority. That's I mean, it. there was this relationship thing, then the guy was sort of like as much a guru as a partner and perhaps other in instances in your life of that. I completely confess that. And that's yeah. thank you. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. So in my case, there was a need to sort of rebel or reject it temporarily mm -hmm. as a fiery way to really ensure that I came within somebody who's more balanced. I think that's really what my story is, is a confession of, Rick, is, like I said, neuroses and, and whatever. So whatever my own issues were, that's in some way you could say what determined the path. But thank you. I, I totally agree with that. And that's why maybe there was such a swing here. Yeah. and a need to go within. And probably these shifts in your life, various transitions you went through that we've been talking about, were really just the external symptoms of stages of maturation that you were going through internally. You know, And when a, when a certain stage of self-sufficiency had been reached, then there was a natural sloughing off of this or that external authority and, and, a, more, and a standing more on your own feet. Oh, I love that. Thank you. What a great insight. Yes, that's really wonderful. Yeah, I agree. Out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> Wonderfully said. Way to go. <laughs> yes. It's it's wonderful how you can you're you're a great listener. I really appreciate that. That's that was good listening and good insight. So, Thank you. Yeah. So Pamela, good old Pamela. I'm gonna be seeing oh. Pamela in about ten days at, at the Science of Non Duality you. conference. Oh, I love her. Yeah. So we both started teaching at the same time and so I attended her satsang right from the beginning and loved it. She's mm. wonderful. Yeah. So she's always been teacher, friend, mentor, big sister, whatever. But around this time when I was going through that pendulum swing of rejecting the external authorities, I bumped into her and I'd stopped going to satsang at this period. It's like, okay, I've gotta get it within. But she, so insightful, right away, just recognized that this was just part of the integration embodiment phase, sort of like the insight that you just had. And it really helped. And I, there was an, enough openness to hear that and receive it. And it was, so there was good clarification and it was helpful. Pamela was very, very helpful through this whole phase up until now. Really insightful and 
so gracious and generous and wise. So I adore her. Yeah, she's awesome. And for those listening, I, I interviewed Pamela quite a few years ago, and so you'll find that on Batgap. Definitely should interview her again one of these days. She's a good one. Aside from our mutual admiration of Pamela, can you say more specifically how your interaction with her facilitated your, your process? Well, that first one, well, that particular one, it just made it more obvious. Consciousness became more focused on, okay, that's what's happening. Hmm. So then the pendulum stopped swinging. Okay, what's what's happening? Uh, this is just embodiment. This is just integration. I see, I see. Yeah, it just helped to light that up. I was just in my experience, but this made it more clear, mm -hmm. the sort of theme of it. And then over the next few years, every time I sat with her or saw her or whatever, it would be a deeper invitation. Like at one point, I, I had a dream about her. She came to me. I wouldn't call this a dream really, but it happened when I, I was asleep. Things. But she said, join me in freedom. I was just about to go to one of her retreats. And so I got there and I went to see her and said, wow, you came to me in, in a dream and you, you said, join me in freedom. And she said, no, I said, join me in total freedom. And it was one of those moments, Rick, where something just responded and it was pretty special. So she just really kept encouraging that deeper understanding, resting in acceptance of that this unfoldment was happening. I think it's interesting to point out that despite the fact that you had already been a spiritual teacher in your own right, you had the humility, if, if that's the right word, and sincerity to sit with another spiritual teacher to, to further your progress. You know, you, you had no sort of sense that you were beyond the need of any kind of guidance or inspiration. You know, Pamela is a great model of that. She, she'll sit with who she resonates with as well. And mm -hmm. there's all, you know, Nisargadatta, again, he said something about uh, people tend to focus with him on when he, the non-dual part, what we traditionally call non-dual of the no self. And all, but, you know, there was, there's all these passages where he talks about, you know, this exploration of, you know, the, he said something like, I love this, wish I could remember the exact quote, but something like the recognition of what we aren't is finite. We come to the end of that inquiry. Mm. You know, we see through it. But the investigation into what we are is infinite. I yeah, love that. I love that too. I saw that recently. I don't know if it was in notes you sent me or what. Maybe not. Maybe it was in that thing you did with Gary Nixon you did in an interview. Maybe. But that's a great quote. And that's kind of one of my guiding principles. It's so wonderful. When we talk about the major realization I had we're about to talk about, that's when that really came to me. But it's like, so yeah, why not? Repeat that I'm again. A, since so, so it's, it's so important. Just say it one more time. Something like the investigation into the false, what we aren't, is finite. We come to the end of that because that's a fictional self. It's a finite object. However, the investigation, the experience, the unfolding into what we are is infinite because what we are is infinite. Just to throw in a little thing about mathematics, and I'm not a mathematician, but I've heard this in lectures that, you know, in mathematics there are infinities and infinities and infinities. I mean, you can take infinity and it's, it's big, it's infinity, but then add one to it or square it, multiply it times itself. And so you have a bigger infinity. And, oh. you know, it's so like there's no end to it. You, you can do that endlessly. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's a couple of people I really resonate with. And Pamela Wilson is, you know, for years, that's the only person I was drawn to sit with. And I typically go to her summer retreat every year. And it's just a wonderful celebration. And 
always, why not? Yeah. Why not have a... Who mentor? else do you resonate with? Right this moment, Isaac Shapiro. Oh yeah, Isaac is great. He's wonderful. He was just in Calgary and I was happened to be talking to Pamela on the phone and, and I said he was here and she said, go. And I was like, okay. And I went and it was wonderful because yeah. he helps with, for me, it's a really important piece of embodiment, which is the uh, getting the nervous system to relax and different ways to deal with trauma. And yeah, that's, that's an area of interest to me. So yeah, I think he's wonderful. There are others, uh, just their names aren't coming to me right now. Susanna Marie, who you've interviewed. Oh yeah, I'll be seeing yeah. her in 10 days too. She's coming. Yeah, she's lovely. That's cool. Just a little Isaac Shapiro story. A couple of years ago at the Sand Conference, I had already interviewed him and I first encountered him in, at breakfast in the dining room and I said, Isaac, hi, it's Rick Archer. And he kind of looked, he put down his tray and then he turned to me and just gave me this wonderful hug with full attention. He wasn't going to sort of do it with his tray in his hands or anything like that. And just as like totally focused and great heart as like getting hugged by a big warm bear. And then he kind of hung around and came to a bunch of other stuff I was doing at the conference, interviewing this and that person, participating in a group discussion. So I really, uh, really liked Isaac a lot and hope to see him mm. again soon. Wonderful. Yeah, he is so genuine and, and yeah, really, really appreciate him a lot. It's nice what we're touching on right now, this sort of mutual admiration society of people who are peers in, in some respects, but each who, who each have their own gifts and whose gifts we may not have and from whom we can derive benefit. And we're never kind of beyond the point of enriching our own life, our own perspective by being with one of these other people. Yeah, I agree. It's lovely to watch the different areas of specialty or focus or grace or gift or intelligence coming through and yeah why not it's like doctors never stop going to conferences and all where they can hear other specialists in their field you know say something that they might not know so much about okay so let's see where are we here in your notes um okay uh, so um <laughs> last couple of highlights then and i'll string them together so okay. around this time i just started to sit again but just to sit and in i wasn't in a meditative sense yeah, I wasn't teaching or doing anything, but I just got this urge to sit. So one day soon after that, I was sitting and just spontaneously Ramana's inquiry came. Mm. It came with who am I, but then it changed form into who's thinking. And just in that moment, there was a recognition that there is no thinker. And it hadn't been seen that clearly before. I mean, there's been all big chunks of, you know, became like cheesecloth, but still... And so there was just this clarity, thinking stopped for, I don't know, two or three days, whatever it was. And so there was just this natural functioning without that interpreter or the middleman, I think Adi Shanti called it. And so it was, it was lovely. When the first thought sort of flickered in, it was just okay. It realized it was just clear now because it's a potential danger of teachings like Eckhart's if people, you know, we all do our own trip with this stuff, right? And a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people I talked to over the years, and I did it myself, you, you almost make thought into an enemy. And that's, an, that's mm -hmm. a misunderstanding. And so I think in the background, there might have been a little bit still of feeling that thought was inferior or whatever. And so when it came back in, it was like, oh, how sweet. It was like a bird moving through. And so then there was just a deeper relaxation into thought after that. However... I noticed after this, um, occasionally there would be what I would call suffering would arise. And even though it was understood that that's something psychological, whatever, sometimes it would still arise. So there was this growing recognition, okay, something's been overlooked. 
And so that, once again, that real intensity that had built several times that I've shared and other times besides that started to build again. I was like, okay, something's, something's cooking. Cool. This was a time when, again, it was just really clear. It wasn't a, even a rejection. It was just clarity. I'm not looking anywhere for the answer to this. I've tried all the greats and here suffering still arising. I got to find the answer to this myself. It was just clear seeing. So a couple of things happened, and I don't remember which order, but just to compress it in the interest of time. And this suffering one, was some kind of emotional suffering, would we say? Uh, yeah, psychological. Yeah. Psychological, okay. Yeah. So there were two areas that was showing up. One was in illness. Hmm. I had a few chronic illnesses that were still coming, even though there'd been a lot of investigation and you know presence around them, there was still something there and I didn't recognize what it was. So when I started to really get very intense with the inquiry, I recognized, oh, there's just a remaining sense of, of an identity in there. Mm -hmm. The illness itself was given reality. So when the symptoms would come up, just very subtly, there'd be that sense of the history of this thing and it would be projected into the future, like this illness was an entity and that's a form of identification. Mm. So I just clearly saw that. And so with a couple of illnesses, one in particular, when I was doing the inquiry, I saw that and the symptoms stopped on the spot and have never come back. That's neat. Oh, it was, it was incredible. It's like, whoa, this is really powerful. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of investigation into things at that time and after that. So that was a big one. There was a second illness where that happened with but. In the interest of full disclosure, I did have an experimental treatment with that one. So you never know if maybe that mm. finally kicked in. But on the spot, the, the thing itself was over. That's cool. So it was two major areas. I was debilitated. I really couldn't function for a few years. So it's pretty strong. Wow. It's interesting to think you're doing that for yourself. It's interesting to think of examples such as they're in the Bible where Christ, you know, heals some leper or paralyzed person or something like that, probably through the same principle, but with such a profound degree of mastery to be able to do it with somebody else like that. Absolutely. And of course, you have to know it here first. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's the thing. And so right around that time, the other thing that was happening was what I came to see was there was suffering about suffering. Hmm. There was just this little remaining sort of sense of the one who was supposed to end suffering. And I didn't hmm. recognize I'd taken that on. So anytime suffering arose, this little imaginary entity felt thwarted. Oh no, it's come again, I've failed. <laughs> so it was causing this angst, I guess. And it, it was also the sense that I'm supposed to, unconsciously had taken on, I was supposed to end suffering for all of humanity. So <laughs> this big thing, right? So just sitting down and I, I just got this real intensity and I actually heard out loud, that's enough. And I knew what it meant. It meant that's enough of this. Let's. So I sat down and this intensity rose, I'm not getting off this chair until I see through this. And right away through the inquiry, just that fictional sense of self was seen through. It's seen, oh, it's just in the mind. And then that whole sense of the mind-made self just sort of collapsed like a house of cards experience. Interesting. And you said as a result of this, I think this is the, as a result of that, that an enormous energy and aliveness arose that lasted for about 18 months. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one way we could talk about that is perhaps the life force that had been, I mean, this is just a conceptual thing, mm -hmm. but that had been trapped in sustaining that remaining sense of self was freed up. So I don't know, Rick. No, that's a good point. I think a lot of life force is, is caught up in, you know, remember an hour ago, you're talking about how you looked at that person in the car and, and you could sense that they were trapped in, 
in the ego and, and implicit in the way you said that was that the tremendous amount of energy is, is tied up in maintaining that structure. It's a common report and an observation of people who are highly liberated, deeply liberated, that there's this tremendous outpouring of energy that just have, you know, infinite, what's the word? <laughs> just, you know what I'm trying to say. It's just yeah, yeah. incredible dynamism, you know, tremendous dynamism. Yeah, it's exciting, and I feel like part of this indefatigable. I think that's the that's way. it. Yeah. Well done. I wasn't even going to attempt it. I'm like, wait a second, I'm going to think about that. Uh, and I think part of the purpose of this, I've seen this a lot of times with some of the teachers or masters or whatever. When you look at their life story, there's a period after they've had another realization, and this is just conceptual. But just see if this resonates. It's like part of the purpose of that outpouring mm -hmm. is so that it can go into the collective and touch. It's like a tuning fork, making that possible for others. And I did see yeah. some of that happening over that period because mm -hmm. I shared some of this for a while uh, with other people and did some sort of non-dual pointing and whatever for a while mm -hmm. but yeah but it's interesting because right away though after a very brief period life just took a left turn it's just completely stopped it's interesting a couple things happened one I didn't recognize there'd still been a momentum to sort of like spiritual or seeking activities and I didn't notice till after this it's like I oftentimes use the analogy of it's like there was a generator that was plugged in and I didn't know it was there and it was generating the seeking mechanisms mm. all day long. Yeah. And then with this recognition, it's like the plug got pulled and that stuff stopped. I didn't even know, notice it's after the fact. One day I was sitting and I was this sort of sense of boredom arose. I'm like, boredom, I never have that. What's this? So when I looked at it, it's like, oh, I'm not doing all that spending eight hours a day meditating and reading books and all that i'm just being mm. and it was, it was interesting so right away though life started moving into going to school taking courses getting a job sort of counterintuitive to what you think would would happen necessarily after that well it's like that dyeing the cloth analogy i used a while back you know whereas there's a dipping and a bleaching and a dipping and a bleaching so you, your, your life seems to have gone through these cycles where yes you know you, you dive deep and then you integrate Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's just funny because it seems like the traditional pattern is you just with each realization, you just go deeper into your teaching or whatever. But that's never been my thing. I, you know, I never started out to be a teacher. And so it kind of drops off and then comes back. Anyway, so it was definitely followed by a period of very intense integration. Yeah, it's funny. Somebody emailed me a few days ago about this interview and said, what, what is it with Karen? She's a teacher. She's not a teacher. She's a teacher. She's not a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I think we've explained it. <laughs> there it is. And also, you know, part of the process, because I never started out that way, yeah. but I did notice this, there's so many other things. I mean, as with, I'm sure most of your guests, you could probably talk all day, but there's a, one of the patterns that happened is, you know, when you watch the intelligence, Rick, you know how it is. So the intelligence of one of the things that happened by pulling me away from being part of Eckhart's organization or whatever was it exposed something that I hadn't seen. And that was just innocently. I never started to be a teacher. It happened organically. Mm -hmm. But behind the scenes, there was some identification that had arisen with the teacher role. Mm -hmm. So every one of these gaps, it's just exposed something. And it's, it's very intelligent and beneficent. It's perfect. Mm -hmm. So in that particular case, it's like, oh, and a couple of other times, I mean, I'd go through a shift and then I'd go back and sit in the chair and I'd be looking to see if there was any teacher present. And as and there wasn't. Uh -huh. And after when I couldn't find any, then it's like teaching sort of fell away even more. But it's not a thing for me. It's just life. When something's realized, you know, it wants to be shared. Yeah. But it's, it's not sort of my main thing. It's just incidental almost. 
Well, like we were saying in the beginning, you know, we're all instruments of the divine, and um, it's gratifying to the instrument, and it's beneficial to the whomever the in instrument influences to serve in that role. And, and we all have different roles to play. There are as many instruments as there are people. Yes, I agree. And um, the other thing is that life was also, this whole thing was, you know, who knows, because we're not done yet. I mean, when I get to the end of life, if you're still around, I can send you a note and say, hey, this is how it turned out. <laughs> but one of the things I've seen is there's an intelligence to this unfolding, and it's brought me to another place, another way of, let's say, serving or being with people mm. that's just more appropriate and authentic at this point. Um, I, all, I always, not always, but the last few years when I was performing the teaching function, there was this recognition of, now, I'm not making a blanket statement, I'm talking about my experience, but there was this sense of everything, whatever that is here is there also. But when this one sits in the chair, it creates the separation. And I really, really invited people to look beyond that and try different formats. But I noticed there, it, it, there's, there was almost, it almost like reinforced that sense of there's something here that you don't have. And because I'm sitting in the chair, I'm going to give it to you. So there was part of me just being really aware of that. And it's, it, with some teachers, it's not an issue. It really doesn't matter. But here, it's just, there was just this, there's something about empowerment really is the underlying theme of whoever I'm serving or that function is being performed. It's like there's, there's a real desire for empowerment and the way that it works best here right now is more one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. But so there's this other thing too that was taking me out of that traditional teacher format. It worked for a while. Maybe it'll happen again, but it's not my primary thing. It's not my primary love. So life was also coming into a more appropriate form for my temperament or whatever. Even one-on-one, -on -one, it's like, okay, I'm signing up to have a consultation with Karen. You know, it's not, she's not signing up to have one with me, I'm signing up to have one with her, you know. So even there, there's going to be that, that potential imbalance in, in the roles, perhaps. We could probably talk about how you or how other teachers have dealt with this issue. But I, I also have, don't have a problem with somebody having more to offer than the average person. Ramana Maharshi, for instance, had something, and it was appropriate that he was the guru in that ashram. But I think he also did things to humble himself, like working in the kitchen and, you know, just kind of showing that despite his specialness, he was an ordinary guy in, in a way. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, there's there's nothing wrong. And I'm perfectly happy to go and sit with, I just sat with Isaac and he was in the chair. And with him, he's he's really found this beautiful way of being so inclusive. And it really works for me. Same with Pamela. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with you. And just for my own unfoldment there's just been periods where it just hasn't felt right to sit in that format that's yeah. all it's, it's really not a big deal oh yeah I, I totally understand i was a tm teacher for 25 years that was quite a while ago and i don't have any inclination to nor do i feel at all qualified to be a teacher now it's just um i'm definitely in, in ongoing student mode if we want to put it that way it's well, doing something that i'm good at and that's appropriate for me to do serving in the way i can serve that's beautiful. I love that. That's how I feel. It's just however life is going to use these instruments. It's gorgeous. And thank goodness you do what you do, Rick, because it's such a service to the Sangha. It's wonderful. So, yay. Yeah. Thanks. So, 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think to each their own. And there's and it's something also Pamela helped me to see as well when I, the last time when it's just was like, no, you got to stop this. This intelligence is like, take down your website, put up your shingle, forget it. Yeah. And it was just, again, this knowing that something new wanted to emerge and, and everything known had to dissolve. And I just happened to see Pamela around that time and she's, you know, I didn't say anything to her and she said, yeah, something new is trying to come through you and it won't until you let this mm. die. So I did. And also something was revealed through that process that had been overlooked, yeah. which was perfect. And once I saw that, everything changed and it was this underlying little concept innocent heartfelt actually overlooked belief misunderstanding that had come along many years ago and had been unseen which was that the idea was my worth or value only comes through serving and of course it's just through being that's our worth and value so that was seen and that came to rest and then everything started to get going again so yeah. it's kind of kind of neat and one follows from the other because if you serve without adequately being, then what sort of service are you actually providing? Sure, yeah. sure, absolutely. But again, this is a story of everything being brought to light that can be, that's in any way obscuring or limiting the experience. And I think that's the journey we're all on. So that's my story. Yeah, and I love how the way you've continued, I love the way you've continued to refer to an intelligence which is kind of larger or wiser than ourselves which keeps guiding us, you know, and uh, we keep sort of being nudged or kicked or you know, <laughs> tickled or whatever to benefit from what it's trying to, to accomplish with us. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. One other little tidbit here that comes back to you, Rick, is a number of years ago, I don't remember, we could look it up. This inquiry started to arise once there was a real stability and whatever this is. And there was this knowing that, you know, all those other faculties where are they? There was a sort of sense that there was going to be a way that this all could come together. It was just an intuitive knowing, but I was just in the unknown and just sensing that coming. And then I got this intuition one day to turn on your show hmm. and you happened to be interviewing Mercedes Kirkle. And when I heard her story, I knew that was going to be a similar story for me. Hmm. Someone who had been with a teacher, had their awakening, and then their life took a very dramatic turn and started doing something kind of woo woo, yeah. <laughs> you know? spiritual out there. And so I'm grateful to you because I wouldn't have found my way to her, I'm sure, without that. Mm -hmm. And but during the telling of her story, it goes back to what you said earlier. It's like everything in me, just like when I touched the power of now, everything went zzz, huh. and I knew it was kind of a clue. So thank you for that. Cool. I, I love hearing those little stories. And, and I'm sure they're for everyone I hear, there are thousands that I don't hear, but it's kind of a joy Marshi Mahesh Yogi once told me I was a, con a connector and a collector. So I, I kind of like playing that connector role. And, and you know, there, there was a connection you just described that I wasn't aware of. But it's, it's really fun kind of plugging people in unwittingly most of the time to situations or opportunities or other, other people that are going to benefit them or facilitate their growth. That's a great thing about your show. So that's kind of what ended up happening is that dimension just started to open up again. And I started just, again, I had an intuition and it was validated externally, like some of the other stuff I've shared. And I just started to sit with people and man, it's amazing to me. Every session I'm like, wow, I never know what to expect. It's just this sense of oneness and love and whatever shows up and watching 
what happens for people. It, it's just love and gratitude is my experience. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah. And in your notes here, you say that in these sessions, psychic information often comes that is helpful in healing, releasing, or embracing life circumstances. And each session is unique and arises out of the field of oneness with no imposition of any teaching or formula. So it's sort of like you came full circle with that psychic information thing. It's, it's kind of come back again, but in a different context, a much more solid foundation. Yeah, it's just whatever rises because there's no filter or like you said, there's no imposition of, this is another reason it seems to me that those times of teaching and the messages and whatever, why they've dissolved is because now there's just nothing imposed. Where before, through, through certain periods, for example, with Eckhart's teaching, I might be teaching the inner body awareness or whatever, or my non-dual pointing or whatever. Now there's just nothing except what arises. And mm. it's always perfect for what that person needs in this point of their journey and their evolution. So talk about being an instrument, that's exactly what it is. So everything to me feels like it all fit together, the seeing through of the fictional self, there's nobody here who needs to be a teacher or anything else, there's just life, love, oneness, and it moves and touches and sometimes it's physical healing, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's awakening, sometimes it's embodiment, you know, clarification, it's just whatever. It's pretty cool. That's neat. You become a spiritual jack-of-all-trades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other part of that is master of none. But right. that's the beauty, you know, just to be so transparent and open and available. Uh, it's a joy. And so the one shows up in an apparent other form, and it's communion. I love it. It's very wonderful. So you're doing many of these sessions? Yeah. People it's obviously not... listening to this who want to have one, they just go to your website, karamcfee.com, and find out how to do it? Yes, I'm still working on my website. It's fairly new, but they can just email me and book a session. I do Skype sessions just about every day. And mm -hmm. I also have a couple of beautiful, one is a crystal bookstore here in town and another bookstore that also has crystals. So there's some spiritual centers here locally that I'll, I go and do sessions at those and in my place. So yeah, on yeah. the phone. Most yeah. of the people who are watching this obviously aren't going to be in Calgary, but no. they'll want to Skype you if they want to do that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. Well, I'm sure you know, but Skype, it's virtually the same as being there. It's pretty cool. So, yeah. Great. Okay. Well, this has been wonderful. I think we've really covered it quite thoroughly. Are there any little lingering thoughts that you might want to bring out that you're going to think of five minutes after we hang up? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, but nothing comes to mind. I guess just the invitation for everyone to recognize, I mean, this is a journey. As far as I can tell, there isn't a destination. It's ever unfolding. And so gratitude to you, Rick, for having the opportunity to share and also being able to witness so many other people's story of their unfolding. I feel it's really serving us all. Yeah, just keep on trucking because life keeps unfolding. It gets better and better and better. And as we come into our own inner authority and really embody this reality, life it just comes into right alignment and it's pretty pretty gorgeous there's a saying that the goal is all along the path so it's not like we have to pass over today for some glorious future the future may be more glorious than today is but there's a lot of glory in the moment too which i'm sure is very eckhart like to say you know it's so true you know i'm in love with life even through the hardships that has been a common theme here is loving that which is unfolding at all and it's pretty delicious even when it's challenging and it is. It's, to me, it's a love affair with the divine, with life. It's pretty cool. Great.
All right, well, let me make some wrap-up points. First of all, thanks to those who surmounted our technical difficulties and, and listened to the live streaming version of this. It looks like there have been about 20 or 30 people on throughout the call. Sometimes it's 50 to 80, but that's when we're doing it every week and there aren't any glitches. So <laughs> appreciate your diligence in tuning into that. And um, nobody submitted questions, but in future, if you're watching the live stream and you have a question, there's a form at the bottom of the upcoming interviews page, and you're welcome to submit one. So this interview with Karen has been, as you probably know, one in an ongoing series. There have been well over 300 now, and if you'd like to check out the past ones, go to the past interviews menu on batgap.com, and you'll see them categorized in four or five different ways. There is also the future interviews menu, where you can see what's coming up. And there's an audio podcast of this, which almost as many people listen to as watch the video. So there are people commuting and bike riding and whatnot listening to it. So there's a page where you can see the various options to sign up for that. There's the donate button, as I mentioned, which makes it possible for us to do this. And um, from the outset, my concept was to just make this freely available and grow it to the point where voluntary donations would make it self-supporting. And it's moving in that direction, so I appreciate that. And it enables people in very far-flung places to watch this who otherwise wouldn't be able to if there were any kind of entry fee. And there's an email sign-up thing. People have been saying, why, why no new interviews? Why no new interviews? Because we are on vacation. I went to Vancouver. But if you sign up to be notified by email each time a new one is posted, you'll just know within 24 hours after it's posted. So feel free to do that. All right. Well, thanks for listening or watching. And we will see you next week. The next one is Andrew Harvey, which if you're not familiar with him, it's going to be a total delight. He's an amazing guy. I've been tuned into him for at least 20 years. and He's a beautiful man. So see you then.